welcome to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. I'm your host, Craig Couch, and every week it's my job to interview top performers and unlock the secrets of their success so that you and I can apply some of their thought patterns, daily rituals, and strategies to our own missions. My next guest is a local enigma. No one is quite sure what he does, and he kind of likes it that way. I've been friends with Walt Lawrence for 20 years, and I've always been amazed and slightly mystified by his approach to business. He graduated from the University of Texas in 92 with an English literature degree. He spent seven years dedicated to the retail commercial uh, real estate business, culminating in becoming president of Woodmont's brokerage division by age 27. He cold-called the Mills Corporation in the mid-90s and convinced them to come to Texas, which is a huge deal. It resulted in exclusively representing them for both Grapevine Mills Mall here and Katie Mills Mall in Houston, as well as representing Bass Pro Shops adjacent to each of these locations. And he's had over a billion dollars in real estate transactions to date. Um, when he resigned from Woodmont in December of 1999 to pursue his self-described ADD business plan of numerous other adventures, which has resulted in 20 different entrepreneurial ende endeavors over the past 20 years in a wide range of industries. Walt's most recent venture, Clear Sky Partners, is a small business accelerator that forms close partnerships with uniquely differentiated organizations and atypically talented people striving to solve big business problems so they can more rapidly and efficiently expand into their target markets with proper execution. Uh, Walt's been married to Stephanie for 24 years and has three kids, and the oldest one just turned 21 on Christmas Day. Uh, and honestly, I haven't been this excited about a podcast interview in a while. Um, Walt, welcome to the True Grit Podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Craig. I, as I told you before, uh, <clears throat> I'm kind of torn between excited and nervous because of the uh, predecessors that I've, that I've been I know. Some pretty I cool mean, big hitters. Between Ted Kitchens and Matthew McDonald, Lee Long, and yeah. Andrew Sage, these are all people that I've tried to model some aspects of my life after. In fact, uh, last year when I had the honor of doing my father's eulogy, uh, my whole swing thought with what would Ted do? Really? What would throughout Ted do? the whole thing, start to finish, and it was perfectly set up to be at his pulpit, thankfully. Really? Uh, and that kind of added to the nuances. So <laughs> gave me a lot of a lot of guidance, yeah. and, and I don't think he he knows that. But yeah. uh, that guy is amazing. Well, now he does. I bet he's going to listen to this. So uh, you know, I I think I fi I found myself over the years since he's. You know, a, you know, I view him as a spiritual director for me. Um, I found myself asking myself the same question: What would what what would Ted do in this situation? Well, guiding <laughs> light. Well, uh, so you and I have been friends for most of your adventures, and I've always been amazed by this ADD fueled business shenanigans uh, and the fact that you've been involved in twenty different businesses. But I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, veer off of the runway a little bit and ask you a pointed question, and that is, what kind of advice 
would you give a newly married entrepreneur? Well, it's a very important aspect of everything. One, uh, if they are already an entrepreneur when they get married, then you have to believe that she's on board for the uh, wild ride that uh, is going to exist. Um, and so that is a very positive sign. Uh, I did it the other way. <laughs> I, I became fairly successful, created a really nice lifestyle, a whole lot of comfort. And then I ripped the rug out from under everybody and, and went off on what I call as my tumultuous and exciting path. And uh, so I think you need to have alignment with your significant other. Uh, if you're going to do something that is uh, risk oriented and, uh, and this definitely would fall into that category. Uh, people inherently desire uh, to mitigate risk. They're more inclined in my opinion to stick with something that, it works even if it's not optimal. Uh, and in, even if it's not even preferential, they'll do it uh, just out of a desire not to fail. Mm. And uh, that's just human nature at its finest. Uh, and I think that with a marriage, uh, you need to ingrain that this is not going to be uh, anything normalized. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I have uh, my wife is. Um, pretty risk averse. Um, and she, she, one of the things she says is that I don't need to be adventurous because I'm married to you. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) She goes, I don't have to wear a helmet because you wear the helmet and I get to stay at home and worry about what you're doing next. Um, you, you know, as you look at your relationship with Stephanie, uh, and you've, I mean, it's just, it's so, it's just difficult. So it's hard all around just to be married. Um, first of all, without the drama and roller coaster that surrounds entrepreneurship, how, how, how would you suggest, um, sort of reassuring your significant other, um, through the ups and downs that are, you know, typically, you know, I think you we would probably agree that opposites attract and usually there's a risky one and one that takes just loves risk and then one that doesn't. Uh, in our case, it's our wives. What what sort of uh, ideas do you have around that? Well, you know, first off, let me take a step back and say that my wife uh, is much more in tune with her spirituality and connection with God. Uh, than I can profess to be. And I got lucky in that respect. Uh, If she wasn't as resolute in her belief and faith that that ultimately things are going to work out the way they're supposed to, not necessarily in the way that's the most enjoyable, but the way that they're supposed to Mm. from a godly perspective, Mm. then if I hadn't had her have that alignment individually, then we would have ended a long time ago mm. because that was just blind luck on my part that it turned out that she has such a great faith. Mm. And uh, I have a great deal of respect for that. Now with that, what she's done is during the several, I mean, numerous scary and low times, 
she has kind of gone quiet more so than than anything else and just spent more time praying and more time connecting with God and and hoping that that would bring her the peace she needed to endure. But the thing that instilled the most trust, I think, by her was that I was tireless in my efforts and that I was going to solve the problem. I wasn't going to talk about how I was going to do it a lot. I was working incessantly. I was doing what it took to get there, irrespective of what circumstances were. And I wasn't letting fear get in the way. Yeah. So if, if I think she, the summary would be that I think she saw through my actions mm-hmm. enough that when coupled with her faith, she was able to achieve some level of peace. Wow. Wow. That's a great description. What a, what a strong woman <laughs> to, yeah. to oh, God, Lord. you know, like that, the, the part that sticks out to me most is, is, you know, almost the quieting and then shifting to, to prayer. Uh, like, uh, because I could imagine the, the feeling of wanting to be really vocal about the yeah. ADD shenanigans, right. That entrepreneurs often have, um, is there, and, and we're going to move on here in a second, but I just had one more question, just kind of in the family realm. Is there anything you would have done differently in the grinding years with your three children? Now, what I've, I've done with them is I've basically not burdened them with any of this aspect. Uh, mm. My belief is it's imperative to preserve their innocence as long as you can, because the world and social media are going to ruin it sooner than you want to have them experience that anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, thankfully they they're inherently happy kids, uh, not predisposed to being, you know, worried, if you will. And on top of that, I've done what it takes to make sure that they've had a great quality of life. Uh, irrespective of how much stress it has to me because they didn't choose this path. And so (laughs) when you're you're just a passenger, Mm -hmm. you got to hope your driver is going to do fine. Right. So there's an implicit trust that there's, they don't know they had, but they, but I believed it was necessary. Yeah. well-being. I think that's a healthy approach for sure. Well, you know, an entrepreneurship has uh, I've watched it over the years, just kick kick the crap out of you um, over the years, and it's and it takes <laughs> yeah, a toll on your body. Uh, I mean, I recall, <laughs> I recall, and this is this is funny, but it's not. But I, I recall this time, this window of time for you, where Texas wouldn't allow you to drive a car for a year. Can you tell? Yeah, it was like six months, but that was okay. Plenty. Yeah. <laughs> Six months. Okay. I remember, I just yeah. remember you being on your bicycle and just going, wow, he is, this guy never stops. Um, can you tell a brief version of, of that? Well, yeah. And, and I, what I'll do is I'll kind of back up a little bit, you know, out of the 18 or so that, uh, ventures that I've outlined to you, which I remember, I thought there were 13 when we first spoke. Mm-hmm. That's because I've formed a selective memory. Uh, it allows <laughs> okay. me to pull out a lot of the stuff that was really traumatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once I really had to go dig back in, I found that there was almost 50% more of these crazy ventures than I'd originally anticipated. But um, 
you know, there've been two periods during this 20 year process where I've had three or more fails in a row. Sequential fails are the biggest problem. Mm. It's imperative to have fails if you're doing, if you're really trying on any level with anything, you learn a lot more, but you need to try to mitigate the number of times that you have three or more in a row, <laughs> especially once you've created a particular quality of life that warrants an extraordinary amount of income. So, <laughs> you set the bar and three yeah. fails in a row really sucks is what you're saying. So, <laughs> so what you're referring to is the two times that I have exceeded $500,000 in credit card debt in my life as a result of not being willing to work with bankers mm. uh, and wanting to be self-reliant mm. and wanting to sustain the reality for everyone in my family, no matter what the cost to me. In the first one, since it was new to me, uh, I actually had a grand mal seizure and ended up flopping around like a fish on the floor for a minute and a half and ended up in, you know, in the hospital. And, and it was, it was a divine intervention is really what it was. It taught me that God wanted me to move away from pure self-reliance, which is what I had been trying to do for four years in a row after I'd left the real estate world. And I was isolated in a small office trying to do something new that nobody wanted and I believe they should have. And all the dynamics of trying to force things on people because you believe it makes sense add to a pressure when they ultimately tell you, no, that's not, that's not of interest. And so when you overlay that with the fact that I have a, I've maintained my, my one goal financially has never to be missed, never ever to miss a minimum payment. Hmm. and somehow I've managed to do it. So I have stellar credit. I can tell you I'm like 848. <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> because they're like, I wish we could find more crazy people like this that will go all the way to the hilt and somehow pay it back. <laughs> I love it. And so I'm the perfect scenario for them. <laughs> yeah. But um, that grandma seizure actually came in, uh, in uh, the beginning of winter of 2004. And uh, it was a big winner. And when I had that, I decided I needed to go to a commingled office environment where I had other people to have camaraderie with. So I formed a partnership with a group called Concussion, an ad agency, with a performance-based sales deal. But the only problem was the office was about three blocks south of downtown. Mm -hmm. My house is about a mile and a half west of downtown. And so during the winter, I had to ride my my really nice road bike on Lancaster bridge with the wind up and there's ice and cars going by at 60 miles per hour. And that almost killed me more times than anything else. <laughs> stress has killed me. I mean, literally that was the most dangerous thing I've ever done in my life. But I would, again, wasn't willing to be an imposition on anyone else. So I was going to find a way to get there back. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's what you were remembering. Yes. Uh, well, I remember, and I, I remember picking you up, and at times, but I do remember. It's so interesting this transition in your mind and your heart about self reliance because it's something that I struggle with too. Um, 
on a lot of different fronts, but the imposition piece really is interesting because it requires quite a bit of vulnerability to impose on someone else. Um, and I remember thinking that, you know, I guess 15 years ago when you were in that window of time. And I remember thinking as a fellow self-reliant, um, person that I would have to foist myself on you and be at your utter disposal to even get you to agree to let me take you to work on a rainy day. Well, I mean, that's, that's what great friends would be inclined to do. But the reality was I was kind of, it was like a badge of honor to me mm. and the experience of doing that was more exciting to me than not doing it. Okay. And so when you talk about grit, the weird part for me is grit's more enjoyable than anything else to me. Like I get, I get kind of wound up and excited by extraordinary challenge and having to endure or having to overcome or things like cold calling the army, chasing them for two years to get something done that they've never heard of, you know, things like the middle school, right? That kind of, that's like my, that's like my endorphin generator. Mm. And so I don't hold it up as like a badge of honor. It's kind of like I'm a sicko because I like it so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, I had to, I had to figure out my number one fear in life is boredom. That's probably, I, I can't think of anything else. Can I, can I, so I know you really well, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a twist of that boredom piece because I run from personally run from the same emotion. Um, and, um, could you also say that it's lack of momentum or is it, is it true boredom? Well, uh, one thing that's evolved over the last 20 years is my, I used to be impatient and obsessed with being busy, irrespective of whether it was going in the right direction or not. Okay. As I've gotten older, I've become more patient and more discerning about which things I do undertake. And it's had a correlated increase of success. So um, momentum isn't an issue to me if it's not, something you genuinely believe in. Mm. So like, I, I don't mind the starting process if I have complete conviction in something and I don't, I don't really thrive off of just momentum per se. I, I believe the process is what results in success. I don't look at success as the end goal. I genuinely think the everyday grind the little things add up to something successful and big. It's kind of like that analogy I said where, you know, don't, cha don't charge for range balls. Mm. You know, when you go to a fancy golf club and, and they nickel and dime you for range balls, that, that, that model of, you know, trying to suck you in and just get every little thing that can is kind of like anti-momentum to me. Momentum in my world is having something I genuinely believe in sticking with the plan long enough to where I start getting positive feedback and or enough negative feedback to finally let my lockjaw go. Uh, and then it means it's pivot time and pivot time is 
is always hard, but it's sometimes self-imposed on me. <laughs> or forced on you. <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> forced on you. Either you're through a positive scenario where we have a really nice sale mm-hmm. and all of a sudden my toys are taken away or a negative scenario where, you know, the entities, maybe the two partners get sideways with each other and have to exercise their buy sell and, and everything dissolves right in front of my eyes. So that just created incredible value with, you know, and, and, or when there's those cataclysmic moments where someone finally just says, why are you doing this? (laughs) And you go, you know what? You may be right. Yeah. You know, so there's all kinds of scenarios where pivot moments occur, but, I've never struggled with momentum. It's kind of a scenario. I'm sorry for the lengthy no, answer. No, it's, it's great. Well, if we rewind, one of the things I love to do uh, on this podcast is, is talk about transitions and these inflection points and these triggers that we tend to have, um, you know, having that huge seizure was a, you know, one of those um, uh, lockjaw breaking points, as you called it, um, that forced a pivot on you. Um, but then there's also sometimes these internal pivots that happen and, you know, you're at Woodmont, you know, you're 27 years old, you're making three to $400,000 a year. Um, you're in the newspaper cause I saw the articles. Um, I mean, you're, I, I'm get, I guess I want to know what was it that triggered you? specifically to walk away from something that came apparently came so easy to you? There's two things. One, uh, the neatest thing about the commercial real estate world is you don't have to be in an embedded infrastructure, a big firm to still practice it. So I have a broker's license, so I'm able to do that. And I have done it continuously over my whole life, professional life. And frankly, you know, unless you're trying to develop massive shopping centers, there's nothing you need. You can do all that on your own. So I knew I could still have that in my quiver. Hmm. Um, but the, the seminal moment was that I, I kind of freaked out a little bit when I realized that my first child was going to be born in about a month. And that if, in fact, I got further down the life path, and got more and more entrenched and increased more and more obligation and, and literally began binding myself to long-term obligations that would be outside of the professional career change, that it would be too late. And then I would end up a tormented person. And so she was born, you know, on Christmas day of 99 and I resigned on December 21st of 99 for that very reason. And, and you know, I kind of blindsided them. I mean, Stephen Kozlik was a, a very important part of my, my teachings. Uh, he was my mentor there, uh, insanely bright, uh, very, very adept at business, um, very hard on people, but he taught me more than probably anyone else uh, from a business perspective. And I have a lot to thank him for. But I kind of blindsided him on that day and he understood, you know, there was no further I could go there. And uh, he was very gracious about it. And we, was, we remain friends today. But uh, with this kid thing coming down, 
you know, ironically, when I had that grand mal seizure, that was also uh, two and a half months prior to my second child coming. So it seems like there's some correlation here between, <laughs> you know, my my view of that, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, so I'm sensing that there was this level of of pain while you were at Woodmont, discomfort. What were the signs that let you know that you weren't happy with the work itself? Well, there were two things. One, it wasn't it wasn't anyone's fault. Uh, one. They sometimes correlate the business. This is something that needs to be conveyed to a lot of entities. Top producers are not necessarily the best managers. So there was one mistaken pivot that we made where I became the president of the brokerage house because I was one of the top producers at a young age. And that took me out of the game. And it made me have to start dealing with a lot of what I call uh, unimportant issues. Now, they were important to other people, but not to me. So I was managing 25 people, and I was, most of them were 10 years or more older than me. Most of them were a little pissed off that they were having to listen to me in the first place because they knew the situation. And, and so it's important that companies never take a, a top producer out of that role and put them in a management role and, and kind of neuter their capability to do what they love. So that was one thing that we did for a year and then I went back to him and said I can't do this so then he made me a partner in his development group and then the problem there was it takes about a year and a half to get anything substantive done when you're building a big shopping center and so that's a lot of downtime a lot of boredom a lot of uh, city meetings a lot of stuff that just will it's like it's like being on a committee every day and man wow no thanks so it just wasn't fun. And so it wasn't them. It was me learning more about me and the fact that I need pace and I need to be like unbridled, unbridled. in my pace. Right. That's the opposite of a committee meeting. Yes. I mean, you know, we built one shopping center in Northern Pittsburgh and it took them two years to give us approval just because we were from Texas. They didn't want to give it to us. I mean, it was hilarious, but we got it done, you know, but it was so anticlimactic once we were done. So it was just time for me to change. Yeah. And I've still enjoyed thoroughly doing real estate transactions ever since. Well, I've so got one going right now. So. Yeah. Well, cool. I, I, you know, as you look at, you know, that, that was, I guess that all came down, um, right before Christmas. And then you look at Q1 or Q2 of that next year, uh, when you're on your own, you still have your license to practice, um, you know, commercial real estate. Were there any surprises, um, that you didn't expect in that first year of, of being out from <laughs> under the, that's a great question. I love that one. Well, one of the things that I, the first big lesson I learned is even if I genuinely believe it's great for people, they may not agree. <laughs> and so, so I thought, how wonderful would it be to uh, create a performance-based shared savings model, expense reduction consulting firm that is willing to take all of their fixed costs, analyze it deeply, cross-reference it with all of the providers, find the best deal, utilize aggregated buying to get better pricing from my entire client base, all for free until they 
if they elected to move forward with something, then I would take a portion of the savings as it occurred for three months. Okay, hang and on I just thought, a second. So let me let me make sure I got this clear. So what you're basically saying in sort of more basic terms is you would go to companies and say, hey, I can save you some money and improve some efficiencies and you don't have to pay me to do it until I prove to you that I've done it. And once that happens, that's when I get paid. So you're not asking for any money up front. You're just you're just asking him for the opportunity to save the company money. What in the world? Why, why does that company not exist anymore? Well, my underlying premise was people are going to just love this. Yes. They're going to be so excited. So I had at the time deregulated energy just begun. Telecom had just become, uh, you know, T1s were the big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of dramatic change was occurring in the fixed cost world of corporate America. And so I was thinking, this is going to be a ball. Well, a couple of things I learned quickly. One, the larger the entity, the more people are going to be involved in the decision-making process of change the more inclined there's going to be someone who doesn't want to be made to look stupid for not having found the thing that you're bringing to them in the first place. And the more inclined they're going to be to subvert your efforts as a result, because you may be bringing something that they were literally tasked with doing. And it either scares them and makes them think they're going to look foolish or might actually make them look foolish. And so they're going to, I had a guy, I'll never forget this. I had a guy when I brought him a deregulated contract for a 600,000 square foot building. He looked at me and he said, I, I think this was very well done. It's never going to leave this office. The savings exceed my annual salary and I'm supposed to have done this. And I'm just telling you, I'm never showing it to anyone. And I was like, that kind of clarity was like, whoa, this is not going to scale well. Yeah, And so that's why you don't see a bunch of these types of entities thriving and flourishing across corporate America, because they're that risk averse and that scared of change, even if it's warranted, because they don't have anything on the line except downside risk. They're not going to realize any of the savings themselves, but they could be castigated for having either not found it if it works or having elected to do it if it doesn't. And so they're inclined to say no. And just that's that's what I learned the hard way about that business model, which yeah. was a wonderful lesson. Yeah. I mean Can you can you can you summarize the lesson in in a sentence? Because I think I think there's a real, real important goal well, in the, the biggest lesson for me personally is uh, if you have something that genuinely warrants consideration, serious consideration by a large entity, mm-hmm. you have to sell from top down. Mm-hmm. You have to find the person who achieved a high level C level role as a result of them being open to disruption and improvement. And you've got to achieve connection with that person, irrespective of how high they are just for a minute. Even if it means you just get them to say, who they want you to delegate, they want to delegate to do the review. Mm -hmm. That's all you need. Mm. And so, you know, there are times when I have actually spoken to CEOs of large public companies and press releases, just asking who they want me to show something to. 
And then I can go and say, hey, uh, you know, uh, hey, Mark, uh, this is Walt Lawrence. I was speaking with the CEO the other day. <laughs> he mentioned he would like you to uh, take a few minutes just to look over this because, uh, you know, it has a lot of merit. And uh, <laughs> That's great. And, and, and so, you know, you go top down more so than you do bottom up. And it's very apparent in the oil field in particular because, you know, if you try to work through the field all the way up, man, you're going to hit a lot of rough roads. So, Well, and that's, a, that's not a real easy thing to do, um, to, to work your way to the top, to get the ear of the real decision maker is really um, – really one of the lynchment pins to uh, to closing any deal, really. Um, if you're trying to sell a service or something to a company, are there any particular strategies as you look at, a, you know, as you look at the phone numbers and the names on the list in front of you and you're about to, to solicit um, this company what are some of your particular um, mental, you know, sort of your, how do you frame your mind to do it? Cause it's nerve wracking for a lot of people to make these kind of calls. What is your strategy? What are the tactics you use when you're looking at that list? Well, the first and most important thing is whatever you're trying to accomplish needs to be a big line item. It needs to be solving a, a macro view problem whether it's market perception of a failing of the industry or something that is really causing pain within the organization on a large scale. You can't go top down if you're trying to do selling a thousand widgets that are going to have collectively an impact if they did all thousand. If you're going after a big concept that is genuinely a problem, then you can play on the sea level first. Because they're the ones that are having to deal with that subconsciously and consciously on a regular basis. So um, that's the first thing. And secondarily, you know, LinkedIn is is an amazing resource. LinkedIn isn't just about learning about that person. It's about learning about their affiliates and who their right-hand people are, figuring out who they trust figuring out if there's any commonality between your, your network. Uh, deep dive research of them as an individual can be very helpful, uh, not just with LinkedIn, but just doing your homework on such a deep dive level, going down the rabbit hole is what I call it, where you can throw one little nuance in there of some commonality you have with them that might perk their ears and makes you not sound like you're a shill. Uh, most people I've found are willing to give you two minutes irrespective of what role they have. If they believe that you are prepared to utilize those two minutes really well, that's my theory. And so you can convey that either through, you know, three or four bullet point emails that they may never see, uh, or you CC their assistant and you call her or him and you say, listen, please just take two minutes to read these three bullet points and, and tell me if you believe he's going to be willing or she's going to be willing to hear me about this and endear yourself to them because hmm. they're the gatekeepers. 
and they're humans and they kind of like it when somebody treats them as a peer, as opposed to just a, a way, uh, someone in the way. And so it all comes back at the end of the day to reverse engineering from human nature. These people are busy and, but they also like people that are not going to waste their time and maybe can make a cataclysmic change for the better. Hmm. There's like an inherent hope that they have subconsciously, in my opinion, that a new person may bring something to them that will improve their quality of life. That is uh, some really, really high level sales advice right there. Um, incredible. Thank you for sharing that. You know, you and I have talked about um, this gap between, hey, here's my thing. And then the person on the other end saying, oh, I really love your thing. That thing looks interesting. That thing looks like it'd be helpful. Um, that thing really might fit with what I'm doing. Uh, and actually closing the deal and getting paid. In other words, mm-hmm. there's this there's this gap a lot of times with, with people. Uh, they tell you what you want, what they want, and you listen to them, and then you go create what they want, and then you say, ta-da, here it is. And there's there's something that goes on there <laughs> a lot of times. Oh, yeah. Can you, I mean, can you speak you to know, that? Of the, of the eight massive fails of the 18 that I sent you on that list, more than half of those were that very scenario. Mm where I was fulfilling a a stated desire, but didn't realize that it really wasn't a feasible thing to accomplish. So an example would be crack water recycling was a big thing about eight years ago in the oil field. Everybody was talking about it. That's all they were doing. (laughs) They were talking about it. It was the the big rage. In other words, wow, this makes a lot of sense. Let's drive water down into the ground. Let's pull it out. And let's drive it down again instead yeah. of getting new water. And everybody was like, oh, man, we are going to do this. We are. And so, you know, I affiliated with the best in the industry group out of Austin that spent $13 million building out this amazing 18-wheeler that could take slush and make it ultra pure. Like you could make silicon wafers with this water. They way over-engineered. Mm-hmm. No one knew. They were doing exactly what they requested. They didn't, it was genius. It was incredible. It's still being used today but not for profit. (laughs) And, you know, the problem was in order to pay for the amortized cost of this incredible, it was actually a $3.3 million piece of equipment. uh, We had to charge about, I don't know, 10 times what anyone else would need to charge. Admittedly, we could do three times more than anyone else could do with that water, but it was over-engineered. We didn't know it at the time. It was just a genuinely, it was a great theory, but it didn't meet the the rubber, didn't meet the road. And so I've had that same thing, you know, I've noticed it happens a lot of times in commodity based world world view. Like there was a time when everyone believed that gas was always going to be $3 or more per gallon. Who would have known that last four or five years, we would be at where we are on the price of unleaded. 
Well, I, I can remember saying as I was working on my LPG propane conversion kit business where I was going to do on-site fueling for companies with large fleets of mid-sized trucks, I can guarantee you a less than $1.50 cost per gallon from now on and a longer life on your engine. And it amortizes over 15 months and you'll have on-site fueling so your teams won't be spending a lot of time at convenience stores. You know, there's a lot of reasons why this makes sense. Well, I was working off an assumption that I knew what oil was going to do. You can't, if anyone tells you they know what oil's going to do, they're wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that's another lesson that I learned through this. I mean, we, and that was a case of me trying to solve a problem that wasn't really a problem in the eyes of people. Mm-hmm. It was one I thought they ought to solve, and I believe they should do, but they didn't care. Everybody got adjusted. They get frame of reference adjusted to certain things in life. Yeah. And then the other dimension that I think think is super fascinating, and that is you're solving a problem that would actually embarrass the leadership of the company. Well, you know, you like know, that, saving. That's that, happened at times. Yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, and now I learned that one kind of earlier in my life cycle. You know, you always reverse engineer from the C-level guy's perspective. Mm. Mm-hmm. No matter mm-hmm. whether you're going to get in touch with him or not. Right. Because ultimately, he's the one you need to make sure is happy. Right. For sure. <laughs> wow, this is great. So you've had 20 different ventures, and and you, you mentioned a second ago that that six or eight of them crapped out. Uh, what What was your favorite failure? And when I say that, it's sort of like maybe it's – favorite because it's funny, but also cringe, cringeworthy, maybe. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's two, no, there's the different, the, the word favorite's kind of tricky on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, probably the funniest, but sickening, most sickening one that actually led to me physically crying, which is not a very rare, it's a very rare occasion. Uh, I spent two years getting the U S army convinced that this thing called internet of things was going to be something. Someday. Say it again. The in, in 2003 mm-hmm. in the low point, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was able to uh, cold call the construction engineering and research laboratory in Champaign, Illinois, the U S army and convince them that I could utilize the internet to do real-time adjustments to the thermostats at all of these endpoints on their worldwide on all their bases based on site-specific variables like humidity levels, incoming weather, and we could reduce their energy costs by 10 to 12%. This was the first version of what is called the Internet of Things today. Mm-hmm. Connected, you know, digital transformation, all of them, you hear about it all the time. You hear about it a lot, but you don't see a lot of it still, even 15, 18 years later. It's fascinating to me, but uh, I got it done. They awarded me Fort Huachuca, Arizona, which is a massive 500,000 acre facility. And I got to go out there and wire that place for a pilot test. They loved it. It worked. And they said, all right, we're going to roll it out. And I had a evergreen contract with the company doing it. So in other words, the residual payments would never end until the revenue stream ended. And 
it was going to probably result in a seven-figure residual within a year, recurring for however long the Army would use it. Well, the Army doesn't change things very often. So once you get in, you know, it's, it's going to last a while. Well, I wake up, I think it was maybe March 20th of the next, about two months after they approved it for rollout, and shock and awe occurred. We invaded Iraq, and they canceled all non-critical domestic contracts because of the Iraqi invasion to go get Saddam Hussein. Oh, my gosh. I didn't do anything wrong. It worked, and it all went away because of a new war. And I was like, man, this is, now imagine I'm at about 350000 in credit card debt, right? And this happens. And I think I've finally gotten it. I've gotten the way out. And so it was a real sucker punch. I mean, and just talking about it today, I think, wow. I mean, I got chills right now telling you about it. Just, you can't control these things. And there was a reason for it somewhere. I don't know what to this day was the reason. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that was probably the most dramatic and impactful loss that I've ever had in business. Uh, the company ended up going under, you know, a year later because, you know, things like that. So yeah. it had a lot of merit. Well, they, they do it now every day, all over the place, worldwide. So it had viability. So I don't want to go too far down that one, but you know, the, another one, the, the probably the most disappointing, genuinely disappointing thing that I've experienced in my professional career is a large group healthcare is, is broken. Uh, corporations are paying dramatically more than they should you know, for less care than they deserve. And it is a problem that for some reason gets shoved under the rug more so than anything I've ever seen. So I spent full two years trying to refine and improve and figure out solutions that were economically feasible, risk mitigated. They had everything covered. And I spent uh, the second half of that two years trying to get someone to hear me. And I went oh for 100. I mean, two full years of dedicated, rational, spreadsheet-based, everything was covered. There was no justifiable cause for not doing it. And I went over for 100 with CFOs, HR directors. I could send them an email and say, I know for a fact, based on my due diligence, that there are more than seven figures worth of savings with a comparable or improved service from a reputable you know, grade A company. If you'll just spend 15 minutes with me and hear me out, it's sitting right there like a bird's nest on the ground. And none of them, not one of them ever took action. And so that was the most disheartening uh, of my business experiences. And it made me very, uh, I, I, I had to fight becoming jaded. I was finding myself angry more so than just disappointed. And it taught me that I need to live in the present a little more, be more aware when I do have this lockjaw dynamic going. I should have stopped doing that long before I did. I mean, if people don't want it, it doesn't matter. 
that's the summary. <laughs> that's, the, that's the quote of the podcast right there. If people don't want it, it just doesn't matter. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> so I mean, this, this saying that comes to mind is, you know, the secret to health is not to mourn the past nor worry about the future, but to live in the present moment wisely. Mm. Well, that third part I wasn't doing. Living wisely in the present moment, mm. accepting that people have this, this position. And so it was it was a lot of dynamics and it was a big disappointment for me. But, you know, yet again, there's a reason for everything, in my opinion. Yeah. And and the, and I learned a lot through that. So, well, yeah. and, you know, in our pre-interview, um, you mentioned you said the words, uh, you know, Craig, I've, I've gotten really good at sloughing it off. Mm hmm. Tell me your sloughing it off process. When you get well, one of the neat byproducts of that uh, grand mal seizure is it is it uh, greatly decreased my mental capacity for memory. <laughs> so, and you know, I will tell you that I <laughs> wow. have several. I've had several uh, reunions with high school friends where they talked at length about fun, crazy nights that we had, and I'm like looking at them like they're speaking you know, some sort of different language. And they're like, what in the world? It's like my disc got cleaned so that I would have more RAM available yeah. for the future. And, and I've, I have seen it as a blessing to tell you the truth. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I have a deplorable memory. I have to re explore everything except for certain things that I really am right there on top of it. And, and that's been a, a gift. I don't carry a lot of, a lot of baggage around as a result. Uh, now I also, I make that light of that, but I've also learned how to uh, kind of compartmentalize how to not become uh, jaded or angry with other people because of their actions. I think I can, the best part is knowing how to not let people be your problem because situations you can't control sometimes situations sometimes are, are there for a reason. And, you know, it's, there's a lot of times those are more pertinent teaching moments, but if you let every person who in some way offends you, wrongs you, does something that, that impedes your progress. If you let that become a little chink in the armor and you let it be, all of a sudden you'll look up and you'll be like paralyzed because people do a lot of that stuff inadvertently. I mean, there's the concept of resting face, you know, which is a great analogy to me. Like a lot of people are perfectly happy, enjoying their day. And for some reason, their facial structure looks like they're in a horrible mood and matter in hell at the world. And people will sometimes assume that that's their way. That's their life. When all they're doing is they're just sitting there thinking about what a great day it is outside and their kids are you know, thriving. And, and so the resting face analogy is a concept that kind of serves as an example of how you can become assumptive. You can spend a lot more time thinking people are doing and thinking things than they are. Most people are too self-absorbed to really spend a lot of time focused on how they're going to mess you up. And that's a big, that's, I mean, that's a big epiphany, 
You know, you can't get mad at a stone mm. is my premise. Mm -hmm. So don't burden yourself with unproven realities about what people, how people may be burdening you. Don't let perception and or reality of other people's actions get in your way. Find the right people. Mm. And that kind of segues a little bit into your favorite part of my business mantra, I, my no assholes clause. So, uh, you know. Which I've always admired and actually applied. I, you know, when I come across an asshole, I often ask myself, what would Walt do? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, uh, at first what I do with assholes is I have fun with them uh, because it, I learned it's more enjoyable to get them wound up and see how far you can get them down the path just for kicks. Uh, just so just you're really, kicks. you're actually playing them and they don't know it. Uh, and, and it also gives you a chance to ferret out whether they are or not really that. In other words, it, it lets you see if they're really true. If your assumptions are correct. In other words, yes, I see. So okay. You, you know, you don't want to get too concrete in your assessments in my opinion, when it comes to this topic. Uh, without giving it a little run, you need to give it some time, some experiential size. You need to you need to give everybody a chance to prove you wrong if that's your original premise. And it's not a decision that should be made lightly because a lot of times those people are also extremely talented, and you may be foregoing a lot of upside potential by making this decision. Well, in my case, I've decided to take a lighthearted approach to it. And, and make it more enjoyable and fun. And that may be a byproduct of having spent many years cold calling and, you know, all the fun experiences I've gotten to have through that. And, and so I'm kind of a sicko when it comes to this stuff. But, but when, you, when you do, in fact, find someone who originally is an asshole, then you hypothetically break them down with some lighthearted humor or, or you know, basically you get a kind of a, some sort of common ground. Well, sometimes it's like a little flower that blooms out of the rocks. Sometimes they'll turn out to be incredibly thankful that you were willing to endure that first couple of steps. And they're probably on some levels, maybe even lonely because some other people don't take the time to try to ferret it out. So that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> and it ought to be figured out pretty quickly. Yeah. In my opinion, and so if, if my original premise is proven after a fairly reasonable amount of time, then it's adios still. I mean, I am no, no go. I don't care what the upside, because I am going to live an unfettered life of, with the people that I deal with on a regular basis. They have to have common interests, common goals, and reciprocal benefit in mind when I'm working with them. And uh, that's my thing. Yeah, and that's, that's a, made my quality of life dramatically better. Right, with aligned values. Well, um, you've got to just, I'm, I'm just, this can't, it won't leave my mind. You've got to give me a couple of your one liners because I know you have them readily available when you run across a, a, an asshole. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Come on. Well, you got to have I some. Mean, give me a couple. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't do that. I mean, it's, it's also a circumstance. I wish I could. I mean, that'd be really Because if somebody uh, hears that line after they listen to this podcast, so they'll know you're trying to see if there's a flower in the rock. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. You remember how we originally talked about me lacking being an enigma? I think yes. this falls into that category 
you know, uh, and, and frankly, there's no way to, to recreate the right quick-witted humor, in my opinion. You know, it has to happen in real time with the circumstances being correct. And you got to have a glimmer in your eye when you're doing it that they can see. So there's a, there's a way. There's a way. <laughs> there's a part of this that's really hilarious and another part that's sicko. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is something that has made my life much better. It's no, really, it's, it's, uh, that's cool. It's lightning this, this, this mantle. And, you know, this goes for whiners, too, mm. if you really want to get down to it. There's two debilitating partners. If you have to have partners, there's whiners and assholes. Mm. Whiners can be just as debilitating. Mm. They're always so self-absorbed with what's, what's their problem that they're never worried about solving other people's problems. Mm. And uh, it's something that becomes a habit to some people. It's like, they, and they need to learn how they need to be called out for it in a gentle fashion, in a caring fashion, and taught how to through cognitive therapy, whatever, actually long. But they need to learn how to break the cycle of being a whiner, mm. where they are sweeping their own legs. In my opinion, every single day they wake up. Is there an element of of the way you interact with a whiner similar to? Uh, an asshole like are you do you play no, with the whiner as much, much or? caring and, and gentle-hearted mm-hmm. and i see and try to be constructive and mm-hmm. and try to try to help them out yeah. because it's a it's it's not something that i find egregious i think it's just a i think it's a it's kind of a weakness in american society right now that it's yeah. okay to do that right right uh it's been becoming more and more prevalent in the divisiveness of the political world and the, the poor uh, leadership of, of what is construed as leaders mm-hmm. in today's world. Mm-hmm. There's so much uh, negative emotion that's permissible now. Yeah. Permissible. And a lot of it is illustrated by wine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You well, know, that's, how, that's how it like manifests itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so while I have you, because we're running low on time, um, I want to explore something that is, or in a way extract something that's between your ears that I would love to personally know. And that is when you're looking at a new deal, a new venture, uh, a new opportunity, what are the particular steps you take in your evaluation process, because you've been involved in 20 companies, but that means that you've probably glanced at and said no to glanced at and mulled over, then said no to maybe hundreds more. What is your process to, to make a decision to, to make those next steps. Cause I know there's gotta be a, a process. Oh, sure. Well, you know, the most concise and, and clearly correct answer to that is uh, in the last seven years or so, I have noticed in the retrospective review of all of my fails and my wins that the common thread on all the big wins is that I have affiliation with a ninja. With a, say it again? A, a ninja. A ninja. Okay. So <laughs> what I now do is my first prerequisite for anything I do is, is that I want to have a partner 
it is obsessively focused and, and insanely skilled at solving a big problem. It's almost so much so that they're almost on the spectrum. I mean, like I, I want them to be that kind of like rain manish quality of, in, of intellect and focus. And, and a lot of times what I've found is those same people don't have all of the other extra stuff they needed for successful commercialization. Wow. And so, so you're, you're can, talking about a technician around mm -hmm. someone who is that mm. and bring all of the other kind of the buckshot versus the rifle shot type analogy. If this guy can put two bullets through the bullseye at a hundred yards, well, I want to be the buckshot that circles around him and makes it where it kills whatever we're going after. This the sawed-off shotgun. Yeah, the sawed-off shotgun. <laughs> the self-proclaimed you know, with, with a fairly shotgun. tight pattern. You know, so <laughs> yeah. I don't want it to go too wide, too fast. So uh, you know, but that's my business model now, mm. and they love it, and I love it. Right. And I got a bunch of those going right now. I so, love that. So it's 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 so the so the first step, the first thing you're looking at is is this a ninja yes or no what's the second step well the first thing is is the problem they're they're attacking painful enough or big enough with its upside to warrant the attention of sea level people so that's the first prerequisite the second is that hmm. and the third is how are we going to fund it because all of the great ideas that have failed, in my opinion, uh, in my world, have had a common thread of being underfunded. Uh, either by me not having enough money to pour enough into the marketing or for or the partnership not being able to procure the funds from investors that are necessary. That's a leading indicator that your problem isn't big enough or that you don't have the right team to warrant third-party investment. And so if, if nobody wants to fund you, there's a little bit of a romanticized version of that scenario. You always hear about the guy who overcomes that. Well, I don't really like that. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to wear that badge of honor anymore. I want to do things that, that attract money for investment without a whole lot of persuasion and effort. Mm -hmm. I want to speak clearly, not be salesy, be concise, and then have people say, you know what? That's got a lot of merit. Take my money. Yeah. And that, you know, they have, I've also got a theory that almost everything in, in, in business is parallel to dating. And uh, if you think about dating as an analogy, you know, this, that, that really solves a lot of problems. I mean, if you're just going out to the bars trying to have a fling for a night, you're going to get what that brings. You know, if you're going to go after high quality women with, that have clear visions and theories about life and God, you're going to have to take your time. You're going to have to be informed. You're going to have to be strategic. You're going to have to have the details managed and you have to present well. 
<laughs> well, it sounds like we both got real lucky then, if that's the oh, case. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, I don't know. I guess I was just some sort of like fling for her. I, I was like, <laughs> I don't know what she was thinking. I, I have no idea. And I'm very thankful for that. But uh, it did take me a year from the first time I asked her out to the first day. Mm. And during that full year, there were about 20 to 25 conscious actions that I took focused on her. Wow. That, but that's how much she didn't want to go out. With <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that just illustrates the point. <laughs> which just, you know, which I, is I exactly. literally don't, I literally don't like. So. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, we've got to wrap up, Walt. Man, I think we could, we, the, you know, we need to have a round two in a year or so uh, for sure. Because, like, you're the first podcast that I've done where I only got about halfway through my notes. Uh, I've always gotten <laughs> through my notes, but not this one. So we have to do another one sometime soon. So, um, but I want to end us with some rapid fire questions that are just fun. They can be one liners. Uh, let's keep them short. Um, if possible, um, what, as you look forward to 2021, cause 2020 was a cluster mug and today is uh, at the time of this recording is new year's Eve. Um, what is on your not to do list for, uh, 2021? In other words, is there anything you're going to kick out of your life this year? Uh, no, uh, you know, that the underlying one of the many things I said today was staying in the present is essential to me and gratitude has become more and more important uh, in these challenging times mm. and practicing, actually practicing the adherence to gratitude is a lot harder nowadays than it used to be. So it was kind of glossed over. Uh, I see last year, the last year as an incredible teaching moment for all of us. And uh, it's kind of like every other thing we talked about today. Uh, I hate what's happened. I hate the way it's been managed. And uh, I'm very hopeful for this coming year that people will not only have more gratitude, but even normalcy will be considered as an upside. Mm. So I think it's got a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Um, What would you say... Uh, your friends um, would call your superpower. How would they resilience. describe it? Say again? Resilience. Yep. That's my word, actually. That's the word that came to my mind was resilience. <laughs> For sure. Um, what is the biggest thief of your time? Uh, well, it used to be carpool. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> until about a month from now, but uh, I don't have a thief of my time because I've, I've created an autonomous lifestyle where uh, I get to decide who and what I do things with. Mm. And uh, that's, in my opinion, that's the ultimate goal. It's mm. not wealth. It's autonomy. Yes. Oh my gosh. Uh, you're, you're speaking, you're, you're preaching to the choir as it relates to autonomy. It's, it's that, it's also and the other uh, the other side of that is the incredible cost of self reliance, um, but I, that's been my personal experience with 
my uh, desire for autonomy, but the upside, it's the crown jewel of entrepreneurship, I, I think. Yeah. Um, so where do you get your news? I get my news from PBS, uh, Bloomberg, and uh, 60 Minutes. Uh, I think they're collectively all you need. Uh, I try not to get real time news, you know, like NBC, CBS type stuff. Uh, I'm trying to seek longer term thinking, bigger horizon concepts. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to sane out all the crap. So that's the uh, hard part. That's a great way to, that's a great, that's a great way to do it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the 60 minutes is definitely, I mean, it takes quite a bit of time to produce the story and really vet the story. And that's a little bit more of a macro view and they're not going to pick crappy topics. Yeah. There's 55th season or something like that. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of reason for that. Um, what does the first hour of your day look like? Um, it's, it's usually there's a service called medium.com that you're able to go in and you pick about 20 different preferential topics that matter to you. And it scours the internet and brings back only the pertinent articles in magazine length, uh, reading time. Uh, and so they send you an aggregated list of the things that, uh, you're, you're interested in. Dang, that is incredible. I've never heard of that. We will link that to the show notes and I will be all over that. That's yeah, awesome. really neat. Uh, yeah. And so you can, you only end up reading, you know, maybe 20% of what they send you, but you get what you want quickly without finding. Wow. So, uh, last one, this one's kind of fun. HP 12C or iPhone? Well, I have an HP 12C app on my iPhone. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's so awesome. I always remember every time I went to your office, you had a worn out 12C. Like the buttons yeah. were falling off. You couldn't even read uh, the payment key anymore. On well, that that's, the, that's the closest I've ever gotten to being an accountant is being able to do just amortizing value. Yes. <laughs> well, Walt, this has been a just a blast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've done a terrific job of painting a realistic picture of what the entrepreneurial life really looks like. Um, and you definitely are a poster child for what it means to have true grit. Uh, do you have any parting words? Well, one thing in particular, uh, you know, everybody kind of, if they're, if they're in, in, in inherently, uh, intrigued by improvement they have a favorite book and i do want to mention my favorite book for from the standpoint of business it's called anti-fragile mm, wow. and um, it's you know the underlying premise is uh, how to benefit from disorder volatility and turmoil and um, it's one of the most intellectual it's not an easy read who's the author uh, a guy named nasim n-a-s-s-i-m Taleb, T-A-L-E-B, and uh, it's called Anti-Fragile. And I can tell you that it was 
it was life changing for me. It, it took a long time for me to get through it because it's so intense. Hmm. Cool. But, uh, that I think some, anyone who really wants to go off on this path needs to consider that, or at least the summary version of it. Um, and then my, my final thing is that, uh, I think it's imperative that people understand that what you're doing with this podcast is a, is a genuine gift of your heart. And as I told you when you first asked me if I wanted to be on this, I said, I don't really feel like I'm the right guy for this because I like to, I'm not really about trying to self promote per se. But what made me change my mind is I started thinking about the intrinsic goodwill that you're trying to convey to so many people that will help them avoid pain and have more joy. And those are the same things I'm seeking for others. Hmm. And so I just want to thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much, Walt. I think it's, uh, it's amazing. Well, and thank I'm you. Very Barry. proud of you. Well, thank you so much, amigo. I appreciate you coming on the show and those words, uh, mean a lot to me and uh, made my day for sure. Happy New Year to you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Awesome, buddy. Thank you so much for including me. Well, folks, that wraps up our show for this week. If you found this interview helpful and would like to get pearls of wisdom that I've gathered along the way, go to TrueGritPodcast.com and subscribe to the True Grit blog. You will get short, helpful emails written by yours truly. Included in these posts, you will also get the show notes with links to books, articles, and other cool things I run across. Thanks, as always, for listening to the True Grit Podcast, where we believe that personal growth and helping each other solve important problems is the best way to make the world a better place. And don't forget, building a company and a life of meaning takes true grit. True Grit.